0: Father God, we just ask now that your spirit will wound us and heal us, will break us down and build us up. Father, may my words be consistent, Lord, with the grace and truth that you have here. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. There lived an elderly woman in my childhood hometown who seemed to have the exact opposite of the expected normal reaction in any given situation. For example, whenever she was invited to weddings, she'd come wearing a black dress and a scowl on her face. Some of you know people like that. Some of you may be people like that. Her overly critical spirit put a damper on the otherwise joyful atmosphere. The singers were too pitchy. The preacher was too long-winded. The decorations were too shabby. The cake was too dry. The bride's dress was too puffy. And if this were the extent of her uh, "'strange, absurd attitude. "'One might deem her as nothing more than a negative Nancy. "'As it was, she seemed to become an entirely different person "'during the more somber events. "'While she came to weddings dressed in a funeral frock and a frown, "'she uh, came more chipper to funerals. "'She, she would arrive in a happier spirit. "'She would sit smugly in the pew, "'cheerfully gossiping about the deceased freeloading children.' and cracking a few jokes about how we are all destined to become dirt. She'd even laugh out loud in in the middle of this funeral as she would talk about how, if only they knew, the the, the true dirt behind this man. Her liveliness at funerals was as out of place as her gloominess at celebrations. Now, as as, as odd as it would be for us to meet such a person... Jesus warns against having similar out of place responses to the message of God. In hearing the biblical dirge that laments our sin, do we neglect to mourn sin appropriately? In hearing the joyful news of Christ and his gospel, do we fail to celebrate the grace of Jesus? In short, do we dance at funerals and weep at weddings? As this text will show, Christian, Christian discipleship is appropriately responding to Jesus and the Word of God. In this, Jesus invites his listeners to carefully evaluate their response to his message of both repentance and joy. So, here we are in Matthew 11. Jesus has just praised John the Baptist as being the greatest born among women, and now he changes the subject to address this generation. Beginning in verse 16, he says this, But to what shall I call this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. Now in this parable, Jesus sees the generation as a group of playmates who do not respond appropriately to the game. The flute is symbolic of a joyful instrument. It is is played during joyous occasions. And when the flute is played, the expected outcome is for children to dance. As it is, the flute was played, but the children did not dance. On the other hand, the dirge is a somber hymn that's meant to stir up emotions of, of grief and mourning. It's funeral music, and it's meant to bring a spirit of mourning and And pain and reflection of sadness. However, when the dirge was sung, no one mourned. It was altogether an inappropriate response to whatever they were hearing. Now, Jesus explains this parable in the next two verses. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners." Now, if you go back and you read the first beginnings of Matthew, you know that John's mission was to prepare people for the coming of the Lord. He was a fore, not just a forerunner, but a forewarner. He was to warn them of the impending judgment to come. He called his listeners to turn from their sin and to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. His fasting, his clothing, everything about him was meant to express and highlight the tragic reality of rebellion and God's impending judgment and the darkness in which his people found themselves. He sung the dirge of repentance, called people to mourn their sinfulness, called people to be saddened by the fact that their sins had brought separation between them and God. He sung the dirge and the funeral music of sin, telling people that sin had brought devastating devastating effects in their lives and in the lives of their nation and in the lives of their families. And yet, no one mourned. In fact, many of them, including the Pharisees, rejected John out of hand as a radical crazy in the desert. While John was playing the funeral music of repentance... The people continued on joyfully basking in their transgressions. Jesus, on the other hand, came eating and drinking. He had table fellowship with sinners, and it was a joyful symbol of God's reconciliation with those who had rebelled against him. It was a symbol that now God and sinners could come together and commune together once more. So Jesus comes and he goes after the ragamuff and he goes after the tax collector, he goes after the prostitute, he goes after sinners of the worst kind, all for the purpose of showing that he had come to bring God and man back together. It was an overall joyful event as those who were formerly alienated were now able to sit and recline and drink wine from the cup of Jesus as he extends his hand and passes out the bread and extends his hand and gives meat and fellowships with sinners. And yet, instead of rejoicing and dancing at this glad news that God had, was working to reconcile sinners to himself in Jesus, people complained, Jesus is a glutton. He drinks. He's friends with those people. The appropriate re- response to the flute music of Jesus, would have been for an outbreak of dancing and joy. An outbreak of of joy, seeing that God has come to save even the worst of humanity. That God has come to to reconcile to himself former rebels and enemies. And instead of dancing, they were pessimistically rejecting God. D.A. Carson summarizes Jesus' criticism... For you, the, son, the, the, the Baptist is a madman because he fasts, while you want to make merry. Me, you reproach because I eat with publicans, while you insist on strict separation from sinners. You hate the preaching of repentance, and you hate the proclamation of the gospel. We can see the contradiction in these two responses, completely inappropriate to whatever music was playing. Such out-of-place responses... Betrayed the foolishness that characterized the generation. Jesus' conclusion, yet wisdom is justified by our deeds, highlights the absurdity of rejecting the message of repentance and forgiveness. In scripture, wisdom can be defined as living rightly under God's reign. It's situating your life in the reality that God is king and that God is creator and that God has sovereign control over all of life. Wisdom affects one's decisions, it governs your priorities, it governs your affections, your habits, and the entire spectrum of life in this world. As much criticism came towards John's and Jesus' ministry, as much as people thought them to be rather foolish, their lives were filled with undeniable evidence that they were indeed serving God, that they were the ones who were living wisely under God's reign. And that's the irony of it all, is while they are are calling Jesus and John like children. They look at them like ignorant children who are wanting to play. John and Jesus point out their foolishness for not playing the game at hand. They simply do not respond appropriately to the gospel that is offered to them. I think all this begs the question, do we respond appropriately to the word of God? Do we respond appropriately to the Word of God? When we hear messages that call us to repent of sin, do we respond with smug attitude, celebrating the fact that we are not as sinful as those people? Do we celebrate our our, our comparative goodness compared to the relative sinfulness of everybody else? When in reality, the right response to the message of sin and repentance is to mourn ourselves, to mourn our own brokenness, to mourn our own ability to turn away from God. Are there moments that we fail to hear the dirge that the Holy Spirit sings in our lives and then we continue pretending that our sins do not have disastrous effects to ourselves, to our spouses, to our children, and to those around us? How about this? This seems relatively minor in most of our lives. I know in mine I find excuses uh, for myself. Do we celebrate our hot tempers and our ability to put people in their place instead of mourning our sinful anger that does not work the righteousness of God? Do we bask in the joys of gossip, of lust, of pride, but fail to lament how prone our hearts are to drift from the things of God? My friends, when Scripture calls us to repent of sin, when it calls us to recognize sin, it's a call to mourning. It's a dirge. It's a call to lament. It's a call to fasting. It's a call to weeping, not to celebration, not to celebrate your goodness, not to celebrate how great you are at sinning. It's a call to lament and to turn and to repent. On the other hand, we tend to be deaf to the joyful music of Jesus. Jesus plays the flute, but we don't dance. Now, as a sinfully flawed man, I've got to admit, my, friend, my closest friends can tell you this, I have a propensity to, da- to march to the dirge music of temporary discouragement instead of dancing to the sweet song of eternity. I do not always mourn the right things, and neither do I always delight in the right things. And in this, these minor disappointments that are this worldly only tend to overshadow and eclipse the great and eternal abundance of God's grace. Consider how we do this. Do we mourn that we do not have more money, better things, bigger houses, earlier retirements, and neglect the joy of having God as a personal gracious, providing Father? Do we sulk about our jobs? I don't have a bigger church. I don't have more influence. I'm not the CEO. I'm not the CFO. I'm not the whatever else there might be. Do we sulk about our reputations, our limited influence? ...and snub the joy of victory in Christ. How often do we become despondent about our own self-esteem... ...our self-confidence, our body image and intelligence... ...and yet rebuff the opportunity to delight in the fact that... ...out of all of those things, our identity is in Jesus alone. Do you see how we dance at funerals and we mourn at weddings? We weep at weddings? We have the greatest good news ever. God has reconciled sinners to man... We have eternal life. We have everlasting life. We have an an inheritance that is unfading and imperishable, kept in heaven for you, and that can never be corrupted by moth or rust or stolen by thieves. And yet, we mourn minor things. On the reverse, we see our own sin, and we celebrate that it's not as big as we think it could be. We celebrate it's not as bad as those other people. Such responses to the message and word of God is utterly inappropriate in the life of a Christian. As foolish as the generation of Matthew 11 was, a little self-reflection shows just how prone we ourselves are to dance at funerals and weep at weddings. While we claim to have life from God, Christians are known to sometimes dress like the walking dead In the same event, we know that sin is a great calamity, that it has caused separation from God, that it has brought all the biggest problems in the world, that it's the root of everything that we have, the root of our own death even, and yet how often are we enchanted and delighted by its charms? How often are we drawn away after it? If you want to be a truly wise person, a truly wise follower of Jesus, you must be daily evaluating whether you're playing the game appropriately. Whether you're dancing to the right music or weeping at the right event. My friends, that is what's required of us as disciples. Mourn your sin. Mourn the sins of others. Mourn the reality that our world is broken. Sing the dirge music of fallen humanity. Weep at the funeral of man's righteousness, and then turn and dance in joy and worship God gratefully, because He has saved you out of His abundant grace and not out of merit. In the next sections, Jesus continues to call us to have a life that is in harmony with the music of God. Jesus highlights the danger of missing out on the music. For those who miss the dirge of repentance, the result is complete disaster, while those who dance the flute to the flute music of reconciliation receive rest in Jesus. Verse 20 says this, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Now, up to this point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has done incredible things, things that should have brought people to repentance and faith in him. He's healed lepers, he's raised the dead, he's forgiven a paralytic sin, making himself equal to God even in that, showing that he has the power to forgive sin. Again, this should have moved entire cities and nations to come to faith in Jesus. As it was, the cities in which he worked remained unmoved and unrepentant. In that light, Jesus sings a dirge of his own, woe to to you, Chorazin. Now, I don't think we listen to this as Jesus just kind of talking down to people. I think you could hear tears in the voice of Christ here. The word woe is meant to express this deep pain and displeasure, it's uncomfortable. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, they are all cities near the Sea of Galilee. Jesus has been working there. This is where most of his works have been happening. The little girl's been healed here. Lepers have been healed here. It's, it's, it's amazing. And at an initial glance, initial glance, these cities would not have seemed that much different from any other normal town or city in Israel, it wasn't like they had these overly appalling sins happening in these seas. These were very normal second Temple Israelite cities. We don't, we don't see anything in these seas that are abundantly like breathtaking. okay We don't find like idolatrous sh- shrines in Capernaum to this day. The archaeology, there's a, there's a great huge synagogue even. These are pretty decent towns filled with pretty decent people. This is your relative small town, Texas. Good old folk. But here's the critical fact. They have remained unmoved to the music of Jesus. Jesus's denouncement is not brought on by the presence of appalling sin, but by the absence of repentance. Do you hear that? It's not brought on by the presence of appalling sin, but by the absence of repentance. To be sure, all sin is wicked, all sin is worthy of judgment, but the evil that brings Jesus' swift denouncement is negligence to turn from sin into the Lord. This is what brings him the deepest pain and displeasure. To Jesus, the lack of repentance is the source of deep displeasure that causes him to lament over these cities' hopeless future. I mean, if you look at the comparisons, he compares Chorazin and Bethsaida to Tyre and Sidon. These were Old Testament cities that were known for their depravity and their idolatry. Amos 1.9 condemns Tyre for betraying her allies to Edom. They literally led a group of people over and handed them over to a slaughter. Not only that, but in Ezekiel 28.2, God decries Tyre saying that the city has made itself like a god has claimed to be in the status of a god. These are absolutely abhorrent sins, betrayers, self-idolatrous, self-worshipping people. Now, you look at Chorazin and Bethsaida and you're like, whoa, to any Jew who would have heard this, they would have said, you're comparing us to like the worst of humanity. And yet Jesus says, if I'd have worked in Tyre and Sidon, they'd have radically repented. With sackcloth and ashes. He makes the astounding claim it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Now, if you want to feel the gut punch that this statement is, imagine a modern day prophet standing up and saying something like this If North Korea had the same resources, churches, preachers, and unrestricted access to the Bible as you do, it would have repented of its sins long ago. Therefore, it would be better for Pyongyang, North Korea, than for Dallas, Texas on the Day of Judgment. I love being from Texas. I feel like Dallas is a pretty decent place. I love being in America. And yet, Jesus is essentially saying that because we have neglected the gospel... Because we have turned from Jesus. It's not about the long list of sins that a country has or a city has or a people group has or a person has. It's about their response to the saving son of God. This is why Pharisees can be damned to eternal hell and a thief on the cross can be brought into paradise. How is it that treacherous, idolatrous cities stand better, fare better in the judgment. It's simply because the sin of disbelief is a sin that weighs heavier than any other sin that we would list. Murder, betrayal, idolatry, disbelief is the root of them all. Disbelief weighs heavier than them all. Now, think about the most atrocious sins that take your breath away. We just celebrated 9-11, and most of us would say, that was an atrocity. That was terrible. And yet, as bad and as wicked as that was to see those, those uh, twin buildings fall, Jesus views disbelief with far greater displeasure and horror. That is the deep depravity of wickedness. He says something similar to Capernaum. He warns that the city will not be exalted to heaven, which means that they're, they're assuming, hey, we're, pretty, we're relatively good people. We're faithful Jews. Surely we're going to be exalted to heaven. Jesus says, if you think you're going to be exalted to heaven, think again, you're going to be brought down to Hades, which is a, a metaphor for ruin. He says that if he worked with Sodom, worked in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Once again, this is a shocking comparison. Sodom serves as the epitome of evil cities. It is the worst of civilizations in the Bible. And yet with all of its sins, there is a sin that far exceeds the sin of Sodom. Rejection of Christ. Capernaum sits in the hot seat not because it has more vices than Sodom, but because it has rebuffed its Savior. The irony is is that if you go to Capernaum to this day, it is still in ruins. No one's rebuilt it. It's still uninhabited. Showing that what Jesus said prophetically came true. They became like Sodom because their sin was worse than Sodom. They disbelieved the Savior. Now, I think Jesus' severe words concerning disbelief should motivate our priorities as evangelists, as people who are sharing the gospel in our community. Out of all the sins of our towns, our cities, and countries, if I were to ask you, what is the greatest sin that any of your neighbors could ever commit? What is the greatest sin you could ever fathom a human committing? Now, I I think some of us might say abortion. Some of us might say, like, the Holocaust. Some of us might have 9-11 on there. And yet Jesus completely turns those paradigms upside down. He says that the greatest thing that should, the, the sin that should bring our greatest lament is the fact that people have rejected the savior. That's the great sin of humanity. That's the great sin Of the world. We should be heartbroken over disbelief and driven to pity that there are people who, despite all the resources we have, all the English translations we have, all the money that our churches give, all the people who call themselves Christians and come together to pray, that there are yet still so many who have not yet believed the gospel. God forbid that our neighbors in our country never hear the gospel from us. My goodness, we have more than any other generation has ever had. We have more freedoms, more accessibilities, more resources. I mean, you pick up any English translation, and most of them are fairly accurate to the Greek and Hebrew. You don't have to learn a new language to read the Bible anymore. You don't have to go to a priest For him to interpret the Bible, you can sit at your study in the morning and open Scripture, and yet it lays shut. Your neighbor never hears the gospel from you. And my friends, as a preacher, I beg of you before Christ returns to think of how atrocious that is. I'm not just some chicken little saying that the sky is falling. This is the great sin of the American church that we have not prioritized preaching the gospel. If we know that rejecting Christ brings such great ruin, why do we not preach Christ more? How can we stand idly by, knowing that it would be better for Sodom than for someone to stand in the judgment who doesn't know Jesus? If Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum were taking comfort in their relative goodness, Jesus completely shatters that hope. And so for you, who are sitting here and you're thinking about how are you going to escape future judgment, I think it's worth asking, what do you put your hope in? Do you think because you're a relatively good person, you're a fairly decent citizen, you don't overall uh, do people wrong, that surely God is going to let you off better? He's going to let you off the hook. Let me just preach the gospel truth to you. God owes salvation to no one. God owes grace to no one. So if you think that for some reason God owes it to you to have a lighter judgment on you than everybody else because you're a fairly decent person, Jesus completely shatters that hope. You can only be saved by absolute repentance. That's the absolute turning from your rebellion, both big and small, and absolute complete trust in Jesus alone. Everything else leads to absolute disaster. Everything else leads to ruin. For the one who misses the dirge music that calls to repentance, he or she will reap their own ruin. My friends, you see, when the Bible calls sin, sin, when the Bible calls you to repentance, do you see the importance of moving, of acting, of weeping? At the dirge music. And yet we talk about sins. Social sins. Personal sins. Individual sins. And our eyes are dry. Our hearts are hard. And we're not dancing. To the right music. Now we come to the good news. In the previous section, Jesus pronounced woes to and Bethsaida, and Capernaum because they missed the dirge music of repentance. Now in this section, he welcomes sinners to come and joyfully dance to the melodious flute of the gospel. So we've heard the dirge and we've heard the lament, and now we turn to hear this beautiful flute-playing Savior. He says this, let's listen to the melody and the music. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Let me just paraphrase this for you. Thank you, God, that it's not just the seemingly deserving that get saved. Thank you, God, that it's not the morally upright that are saved. Thank you, God, that it's not just the wealthy that are saved or the religious that are saved, but children Helpless, hurting, vulnerable infants that see the truth. Matthew's filled with this kind of great reversal. The truth is not revealed to the self-righteous Pharisees, to the adults. In all their wisdom and understanding and intellect and education and Bible reading, they miss the music. And in the background, infants dance. I hope this brings beautiful hope to you. You are a great sinner. And that truth is contrasted alone by the fact that you have a great Savior. Coming to Jesus requires us to respond and absolute dependence. If you're going to dance to the flute music of the gospel, you must respond by being absolutely dependent, helpless, needy for Jesus. It requires several heart attitudes. I just invite you to do exactly what I've done. Reflect, is this true of your heart on a daily basis? Or is this true of your heart sometimes? Is this something that needs to be true of your heart today? Is this something that needs to be true of your heart more often? So here's several heart attitudes that must happen if we are going to be childlike dependent upon Jesus. First, we are required to humbly acknowledge that God has given Jesus all dominion. God has given Jesus all dominion. This acknowledgement is difficult For those obsessed with their own kingdoms, their own status, their own authority, their own possessions, it's very difficult to acknowledge that Jesus alone has all dominion. I mean, this is my life. Those are my possessions. That's my wife, my kids, my things, my car. And yet Jesus calls us to humbly denounce self-rule, self-authority, and to reclaim the fact that God alone rules through Jesus. We don't have the right to organize life any way we see fit. We don't have the right to say whatever we want. We don't have the right to want and prioritize whatever we think fit. We are completely inadequate to do that. We are sinners. We will pick and say and think and do the wrong things every single time. We need a king. If I am to know God as my father, it will not be because of my intellect because of my power, because of my strength, but because of my weakness in coming to Jesus who can give me the knowledge of God as Father. Second, an appropriate response to, come, to Jesus requires acknowledging our own weariness. My friends, if you don't know you're weary, just look back at the last few months of 2020. We're weary. We're tired people, aren't we? And, and we try to put up a good face We're not that tired, I can do it, I can shoulder it, I can get through this, I can make it, I can do it, I can can strong arm my way through this, I can plow through this, I'll get through this too, and yet, I think there's just something healing about the fact of just saying, you know what, we are heavy laden, we are tired people. We're not just heavy laden by life circumstances, we're heavy laden by our own sin and guilt. Listen to the beautiful words. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Now, for those of you that resonate up to that point, you're heavy laden, you're hurting, you're wounded, you're broken. Listen to the beautiful rest of that statement. And I will give you rest. Have you lost sleep this season? Do your sins keep you awake? Do the sins of the world make you feel heavy? Do you see your life and the world and all the way that it's going and you just are exhausted? Where do you go? Jesus says, Come to me and I will give you rest. Everyone who comes to Jesus comes with a bent back and a sore neck. There's no one that comes to Jesus standing upright and tall. We all come with a bent back and a sore neck. We come with burdens that are too heavy for us to carry on. And yet we can't slunk them off either on our own. We're just crushed underneath them. And what's worse is we live in a world that continues to tell us that there's stuff that we can do about it. Heal thyself. Girl, wash your face. And yet, the gospel claims the exact contrary. My friends, no matter how hard you try, you cannot heal yourself no amount of washing is going to wash away the smudge of guilt and sin and hurt and pain in the fall off the face of your heart the message of the gospel isn't wash yourself heal yourself the message of the gospel is be healed passive Be washed, passive. And yet we are so obsessed like adults. What can I do? What can my strength gain? Maybe a little more elbow grease. And yet Jesus says, you don't need elbow grease. You need the grace of God. You're tired. You're weary. You're out of elbow grease. The smudges aren't coming off. Those things that are in your life, that you would just be mortified if people knew. Those things that you every day regret having done. Those deep, dark secrets and those thoughts and those things that you try so desperately to push under the dark bed covers of your your mind. Those things that you shove into the dark closets of your past. No amount of shoving keeps them in there. You shut the door on those dark closets on your mind, and at night, those closets open up wide, and out comes the boogeyman. And yet Jesus says, I can slay your boogeyman. Jesus gives rest. So just up to this point, are you a child? Are you an infant? We have a newborn, and he is absolutely helpless. Absolutely helpless. When Bubba comes in with a Nerf gun... He cannot protect himself. (laughs) When Sissy decides it's her turn to pick him up like a potato sack, he has no ability to run away. (laughs) But he has the ability to cry out. And here comes Papa. Do you come like an infant, like a child? Are you humbly aware of your own weariness or are you putting a brave face on it all? Now, finally, I think coming to Jesus means coming to him and trusting that in all of his grace and gentleness, only he can give you rest, that you have no other hopes, that you have no other plan Bs. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. I'm not this angry Savior who's red-faced and shaming you every time you slip and fall. I'm not this Savior who's got this long list of all the things that you've done wrong, despite all the grace that I've shown. I'm not the Savior that's going to be for all eternity dredging up your past and showing you that you are a dirty, filthy sinner. No, I'm the Savior who cleanses you of your sin. I'm the Savior who washes it white as snow. I'm the Savior who eradicates your sin and throws it as far as the east is from the west. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. What a beautiful picture we have of our Savior. What kinds of things are you carrying today? What kind of music are you dancing to? How amazing is it that in the midst of our fall and the death of humanity that Jesus breaks out the flute changes the music of our lives? I mean, we deserve nothing but dirges, right? We deserve nothing but lament. We deserve nothing but funeral music. And yet, Jesus plays the happy, joyful flute and welcomes you to dance with him. He came to extend his hand to the thirsty, to the hungry, to the dead, to prostitutes, to tax collectors, to sinners of the worst kind. He came to extend his hand to you. Now, all this points us to the cross. How does he take burdens and relieve us of our burdens? When we come to him heavy laden, he picks up the heavy burden of sin and guilt. It was placed on him on the cross. He died for our sin. Those things that we can't seem to look straight in the eye, he died and took it on on himself. He was buried and he rose again three days later. You have the dirge of the cross. You have the flute music of the tomb. And in this beautiful gospel, we dance this complicated dance that has many steps and yet is altogether beautiful. My friends, my main goal today has been that we would respond appropriately to the message of repentance and restoration. To the message of sin and brokenness, and our rest-giving Savior. Repentance is the dirge music that calls us to mourn. So the dirge is sung, but will we weep? Jesus' invitation to find rest is the flute music that beckons all children to come to get into the marketplace and dance together. The music plays, but will you dance? I pray that followers of Jesus at Grace Church will not dance at funerals and weep at weddings. But we will weep at funerals and dance at weddings. All waiting for the day when the wedding comes and we will dance with our bridegroom forever and ever. No more to weep at dirges. So my friends, may your life be consistent with the news of Jesus and the word of God. And may we dance to the right music. Let's pray. Father God, we lift up our hearts and we pray, Lord, that we will dance to the right music, that we will weep to dirges and sing to the flute, dance to the flute. And Lord, we long for the day when it will be only dancing and never having to listen to a dirge again. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.